legend. Hey guys, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the America seasonal interview because I've got one more up. Unfortunately, Owe was really busy with everything that's coming up in this next expansion and with the seasonal prep. But I've got another busy person that still managed to find time for us. It's none other than the runner-up and the top two in the last seasonal as well, Fresh Lobster. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing quite well. The, the weekend went pretty well. The tournament run went pretty great. Can't complain about everything. Congrats to Owe for winning. Going second always is a bit sad, but getting there in the first place is also amazing. So I'm feeling, I'm feeling good. You're saving yourself for the worst, right? That's why I didn't want to get first place now. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had more agency of when to place, how highly, but it is card games after all. You win some, you lose some. Gotta appreciate the ones you win. You learn how to place yourself on top, on top two to be the runner-up. Just, just get that extra little bit of age to get to top one now. <laughs> I try, I try. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think it's a first for you on our interviews and outside of the Uniliga interviews, which by the way do a great job, we get to know more about our favorite crystal scene. So, first and foremost, what are you doing in your real life outside of LR? So, I am mainly a medicine student. Um, I did, however, kind of pause studying once the corona crisis hit, like I couldn't attend courses and so on anymore. And during the lockdown, I did try out LOR and it moved more and more into being a full-time occupation for me. So I'm still studying a bit on the side, but I'm mainly doing this full-time right now. So are you seeing LOR as the go-to, I don't know, job for the future for you? Yeah, that's a tough question. I don't know how to answer that yet because I'm still exploring everything. Everything's still like growing. We don't know how long LOR will be around, and like, it's it's a kind of a volatile business, right? This whole online content creation thing and so on, and competing in general as well, competing in in esports. Um, so like, it's not my my super long term plan yet, but I also don't want to rule everything out, uh, anything out. Like right now, I'm still planning to continue studying eventually like maybe towards the end of the year i recently wrote that long post that i want to compete a bit less and make more space for other stuff and that includes getting back to medicine studies eventually finishing that and then recontemplate see if content creation is still possible or not if i enjoy it or if i rather want to do something else we're gonna be glad to have you around for more time for sure if you decide to go that road but what is your road to Runeterra? What card, what's your history with card games before you actually tapped into Runeterra? So my main background was poker. Mm. Um, I did, like, I, I played trading card games and CCGs casually as a kid. I played some Hearthstone also, never with the goal of competing, though. Then Artifact, I played a bit more competitively. Um... But when it, like, I, I basically started playing tournaments when the game was already more or less dead. And here and there, I won, like, a small tournament, a tiny bit of prize money, maybe, like, I don't remember, like, 30 bucks, 50 bucks here and there. Uh, the only other... Oh, yeah, also in poker, it was um, more of a side job. I picked that up when I was 16, 17. I started learning about it. Of course, I could only really start playing when I was 18. And I did it 
basically until I started playing Legends of Runeterra as like a hobby, but also it had a, a decent little income, which was nice besides studying. And um, the other video game that I actually competed in was Bloodline Champions way back in the days, like 10 years ago. Um, yeah, that doesn't really translate well to card games, but it uh, was closer to a MOBA, a MOBA arena, just way more fast-paced. And there, I was like, I ended up playing at a pretty high level, but the game never picked off. It was basically around the time when League of Legends Season 1 uh, World Championship. I was actually at the same event competing in a Bloodline Champions World Championship. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> League of Legends outgrew everything, though, and Bloodline Champions never picked off. So, uh, yeah, that was my road of other games and competing and so on. And of eventually arriving at LOR. How did you actually get into LOR? Like, what's the story behind it? Did you just pick it out on a whim, or is there something more to it? Um, yeah, like I mentioned, the Corona crisis was a big hit. So, yeah, all of the casinos were closed. And all of my uni courses dropped and like I couldn't uh, go to the hospital anymore, do any practice stuff, everything. Uh, didn't have anything to do. So I, that was around the time when LOR got released. I already heard about it before. I thought it was interesting. Downloaded it, spent a lot of time during the lockdown grinding LOR and realized like, okay, I was pretty, pretty good at it. Started playing tournaments and so on. And that's basically it. It carried on from there. Some people encouraged me to stream, and I'm glad I did. And just kept on going and going. So and yeah, it's... sometimes like sometimes dark times also can have positive things for sure. And it keeps getting better and better. You mentioned that your background is studying medicine, and when I'm interviewing people, they usually have this uh, this disciplines that they're studying that they are very close to mathematics, very close to being precise needing to have a lot of attention and I think medicine is one of them so do you think that what you picked up studying medicine or anything else translates into you becoming a better player in LR I don't know having the precision of a surgeon <laughs> um, not necessarily that the only thing would maybe be like the endurance and the ability to focus over a long time because you need to learn a lot of facts and so on and the other thing would also be like um learning how to approach things scientifically, learning how to use data, even though the mathemat mathematicians are going to be better at it than a med student. But mostly I think poker skills translated really, really well. Everything about game theory and probabilities and so on. And reading your opponent as well. And math doesn't matter. Math is for the blocker. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, half of the game is blocking. What can I say? <laughs> I mean, you most of the time are on the receiving end of those attacks because you are not usually playing aggressive decks. I think it was only the last season that you tried the more aggressive approach, but traditionally you are more of a combo control player, if I remember correctly. Yes, I just think on a high level those decks are better, like there's more, more uh, potential payoff to playing a deck with a lot of options. That's why they overperform over aggro in tournaments, I think. But I like to think that I can and sometimes do play like a deck of every archetype because if everyone knows you only play control, it's also exploitable. 
Yeah, I think I had an interview with Margin Bay a few a few seasons ago and he was like, alright, I do have this seven or nine decks pool that I am comfortable playing, so if the meta shifts wildly, I still have some comfort in it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good approach. That's definitely a good approach. Like you wanna be somewhat un unpredictable and unscoutable, especially for like those top thirty twos and so on. Definitely. But moving forward, L O R so Straight off the bat, do you have any favorite card in this game, right? From, from this card pool, we don't know what's going to happen after Bendo City kicks in. <laughs> true, true. What, what do you guess, Castman? What do you think my favorite card might be? Crusty hmm, Codger? Ah, not a bad guess. No, it's definitely Teemo. I've, I've been a Teemo <laughs> main and a Teemo hype guy forever. You and Saucy um, Melman. <laughs> basically, yeah. Saucy Melman and me, I don't know, we have... We just have this passion for Teemo for no apparent reason. Teemo was never really strong or good in the meta, but it's just fun to play the Puffcap archetype. And it's only getting better with Bandit City. Would you ditch him for Krusty Kodger? Because I see a lot of similarities between you and Krusty Kodger. <laughs> uh, no. I mean, what is Krusty Kodger though? Isn't he like a crab slash scorpion? I'm not even quite sure. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's basically. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, but Timo is the one and only. Timo is the best. I would never ditch Timo for anything. Throw your heart at the end. I love it. But what card do you absolutely despise? Um, there is a lot. So, on one side, like TK, Tankage Soraka, and the whole archetype. <laughs> Just because I think it's a very unfun deck to play against very unfun play patterns um lee sin for obvious reasons <laughs> uh, but a card that is more concurrent that i can't really stand because it's so prevalent in the meta is make it rain i just don't like the the rng that it brings to the table and sometimes like you make the right decision you lock in your 75 percent make it rain you whiff it and you already kind of lose the game on turn four without ever having made a mistake that's uh, it's just very frustrating to me it's interesting that your first choice was TK Soraka because I knew some people were asking, uh, were asking at some point, hey, what if we are getting something that relies on blocking on defensive turns? And people come, immediately came out and shouted down, all right, do you want to play games that are similar to TK Soraka? Yeah, I did not think so as well. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I don't know why the archetype got designed and why it prevailed for so long in the first place. Like, the only upside is that it's close to the champs in League of Legends, thematically and flavor-wise. But I, I just feel like it's so unfun to play against and the play patterns and so on. Like, it's so against what LOR usually is. And that is, like, combat and focusing on combat and combat tricks but if you play against tk raka most of the time the right play is just to never attack and click pass a million times yeah it's definitely not a, not fun but it sometimes is a good meta call we have seen it on most of the seasonals i think outside of the americas everyone had tk raka in their winning lineup yeah it is often a good meta call all right but... i personally think it doesn't really make the deck more like healthy for the game though i'm, I'm not saying it's bad i'm just saying i i don't think it's good for the game 
not going to see if the new Bender City cards maybe Tikeraki is not going to be strong enough. Maybe still something you could bring casually to the tournament, but not strong enough. But we're talking about cards you like, cards you dislike. What card do you identify yourself with? Um, yeah, thought about this for a bit. I don't think it's Krusty Codger. I think Braum is a very evident one. <laughs> Just for the mustache and the, the sick voice line. Um, unfortunately, not quite the muscle yet. But <laughs> I get there eventually. Is it the mustache? Who knows? Exactly. All right. When are you getting the muscle, though? Um, <laughs> when I do my Brom cosplay and hit the gym. Are you actually planning to do a Brom cosplay? Maybe eventually. It's an idea in the back of my mind. I, I don't have a date for it, though. Alright, so people keep watching Lobster, he might do that infamous Bram cosplay. Uh, before we jump actually into the tournament action, do you remember throughout your career of playing LOR any funny, any sad moment that you had? Anyone, any moment in particular? Um, I mean, funny moments I've had a lot. Whether it was like a brain fart on my own side or someone making a funny misplay or just some funny RNG. I can't really pick anything particular. Sad moments are rather rare. They're usually tied with like tournaments, I'd say. If you have high expectations and you prepare really well and also play really well, but then just low roll and lose early, um, that's always a tough pill to swallow. In any card game, it is. It was in poker, like an artifact, but it also holds true to LOR. And yeah, in that post I recently wrote, I, I highlighted the one from the first EU Masters when we got knocked out in the quarterfinals by Team Croatia, and it felt really bad and sad because I like I felt it was very um, like we very much would have deserved to continue because of the way we prepared, how much time we spent how well we played during the game. But yeah, it, it was not meant to be. Are and you, it's card games. You win some, you lose some. Are you a person that sets such high expectation that takes losses very personally, very, very to your heart? It depends on what the loss is in. In card games, you have to learn to deal with that you don't always have control over whether you win or not. And therefore, you kind of have to, um, like, it's, it's irrealistic to go into a tournament and expect to win it. That being said, even though you know this, and it's mostly random, you still compete with the expectation to eventually win. So it's, it's like, uh, tough to balance there. Like, on, on one side, you're always a bit sad when you're not reaching that goal. On the other hand, you knew it from the start that that would be a likely possibility. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's... Everyone kind of uh, swallows that pill differently. But it, it always... Yeah, it always sucks a bit. Like, as a competitor, you have to expect... To, to make it far, to be one of the best, and any loss or any shortcoming then not feel great, that's for sure.
Do you have any coping mechanisms that you use in order to deal with these situations yourself? Mm, not really. So whatever, like what always helps me is rewatching a game and realizing that I could not have done anything differently. So maybe even I made some tiny mistakes. But even if I would have played better in all of them, I would have still lost the game. I find that like very easy to digest. Because then you you can actually say, okay, it was not meant to be. Like I had no agency of winning that game. Um that's what it was like, for example, in the grand finals of this tournament, and that's why I was also not sad at all. I was much more sad when Two seasons ago, in the top eight, I lost because um, of my own misplays and inexperience and because I had like a last-minute lineup call with decks I wasn't super comfortable with. And there, it was much harder to digest because like, I made a couple of misplays that would have otherwise won me the game. But now we are coming back better, and uh, better. You are coming back stronger, and you are winning tournaments, or at least making the top two. As I said, saving yourself to win worlds. But moving forward to the actual tournament, and let's talk a little bit about Swiss rounds, right? Uh, how was your experience into the Swiss rounds, and what decks did you bring there? Um, honestly, the Swiss rounds were pretty chill. I was streaming them as well. Um. I brought Sivir Demacia. I think I was one of the earlier ones who realized that the deck isn't completely broken. Uh, then Lee Sin, just as a good, well-rounded deck, a comfort pick. And Nivia, Freljord Shadow Eyes. Also a mixture of a comfort pick. And the deck makes sense for tournaments more than ladder because of being able to ban the worst matchup. And because aggro usually bans Nivia anyway, you can tech Nivia very greedily against mid-range and control, therefore making the deck even a bit better. Right, and coming from the open rounds, did you switch your decks into the top cut? If, if you did, what was the reasoning behind switching? Uh, yes, I switched off of Anivia and onto Lulu Z. Um, the reason is mainly... Like, you spent a lot of that week trying to like scout your opponents and see what you most likely play against like try to find out their tendencies what they like to play and um i had a tough time this time it was like a very mixed field and couldn't really decide on the lineup so i stuck with silver demacia just because it's the best deck in the game lee sin also up there and relatively well balanced um i felt like if i have nivia and lee sin it's very targetable though because they have the same bad matchups. One of the reasons why I decided on to Lulu Z is that Lulu Z is good into the matchups that Lee Sin is bad into. And the other way around, Lulu Z is only really bad into like TF Swain, Ezra Draven type of things. And into those matchups, Lee Sin is really good. So I would never really be unfavored, hard unfavored, or like lose by default, right? I could always at least try to outsmart my opponents in picking and banning um, or like at least have a 50-50 shot in the series going into it. 
And doing a little bit of analysis in the open rounds and in the top 42, did you have any opponent that you were afraid you were scared? Or if you were not afraid or scared, maybe you didn't feel that comfortable going into at first glance? Not really. It, I mean, it's a card game. It, it, it doesn't matter a lot who you face. I was a bit annoyed that I was playing against one of the, I think, two aggro players that made the top cuts in the first round, which meant I had to consider that type of stuff in the, like, when building my lineup. And my opponent did go all in on trying to hard counter me in the first round. But uh, yeah, I'm glad it didn't work out. Apart from that, yeah, I mean, the difference in win rate against the best play player and the 10th best player is so marginal i think it doesn't really matter too much who you play against all right let's switch up the question then a bit do you have any player that you had high respect for in the swiss rounds or maybe in the top 42 where the pool was relatively smaller i mean i have a lot of players that i have high respect for but again like none i really would not play against or would avoid to play against so i always hope for everyone that preps with me and all of my training partners to make it to make it far and to not play against them and some of those were like game breaker guardia um you actually, played actually against sir, your student right sir donald <laughs> yeah yeah i was just gonna say that sir donald but i'm glad we faced so late after we were both already qualified for worlds but uh yeah that was an interesting experience and I'm just happy for him that he made it into words, and I think he's super happy too. Was was it a heartbreaking experience for you to to knock him down from the top four? Like he was there, he was qualified, but how how was the experience beating your student as the master? <laughs> uh, not really. Like it could have gone either way. I I know that he's a really good player. Um, I think we both knew it. He's also actually, he came from a poker background, so we're both kind of used to the variance. And we kind of know, like, sometimes the player with the better draw just wins. And um, it, I think it made for an interesting and funny story. But, yeah, like I said, I think we were both also happy that we didn't have to face earlier. Semi-finals is fine. It was a big success for both of us, so... So it, was, it was kind of a win-win in the end. I'm glad to hear it. Before we actually dive into the decks, was the meta that you preferred for in the open rounds and into the top 42 the one you expected for? Or was there some variation, something that blew your minds off, something that surprised you? Mm, not really. Open rounds, I personally faced a tiny bit more aggro than I expected, but it was fine. My lineup was good into aggro. And top cut, I guess I was not really surprised, but I a lot of people were went with very greedy lineups. The Tom Kench Soraka Azir Aurelia pair with usually Sever Demacias, the third deck. And I was expecting quite a few people to do so. Was not necessarily expecting them to go that far because the lineup has very obvious weaknesses as well, but it worked out for them. Not many people played aggro to counter it, to exploit it, and um, yeah, it was a good meta call, and it eventually also won the tournament. Nice. Now, let's dive into, into the decks, because those were the ones that 
got you actually to the top 32. First and foremost is the deck that I think you popularized, at least Mogwai said that you were the one that brought this deck to light, made people actually acknowledge this power. Action severe, but this time the Demacia variant. What what does this deck have in comparison to the neighbor that is playing Ionia? Um, I'd say better and more efficient combat tricks and also rallies. So especially Concerted Strike and Cataclysm is crazy value in this deck. Because it's like you play very cost-efficient, big-statted units, and they're also protected by spell shields and quick attacks. And um, that's one of the biggest benefits. You'll almost always have a board lead early because of cost-efficient unit and combat tricks, and then rallies are very effective to close out the game. And also, challengers plus barriers, we all know that's a crazy strong interaction. Deck is just Super well-rounded and very hard to deal with, very hard to remove the threats. And I do see a couple of cheeky one-offs, a cheeky two-offs. Can you elaborate on those decisions of bringing these cards in particular? Because it's actually a lot of them if I'm looking at the deck. Um, I only changed like two cards from what the, the standard version is. So I cut a Preservarium to add an Honored Lord, mainly because I thought... The the only decks that would leave this open would be aggro decks. It's like the only one, the only archetype that has more or less of a fair chance to beat this. And therefore, I thought an extra two drop would be good. Vagabond as a one off has been in there forever just to smoothen out the curve. A four three drop, also an extra landmark generator for shaped stone or to flip action in deck. Then Absolver, it's a, a lovely one off. Like you don't really need it often but you're always happy to have it as an extra threat as an extra wing con and you also never want to see it early but you're happy to tutor it late that's why i think as a one-off it's great and it used to be two relentless pursuits i just changed them to one and one make it a bit harder to deny agus costs for it sorry to to nopify rather agus can't be nopified agus also is a bit more value it's an extra action landmark trigger Thought it all made sense. You mentioned that the deck is very well rounded, so I need to ask you what are the good matchups and what are the bad matchups for it if there are any. Um yeah, let's start with bad matchups because honestly there aren't any. Like it's it's supposed to lose very slightly to the Silver Ionia version, like 47% or so. And like, on stats, you'll find it loses to Draven Riven, although I've never played that matchup myself, I don't know. And it's supposed to lose to Lulu Z, but I think that's like ladder stats, and that's because a lot of people were also playing versions of this deck that are much worse into tempo decks. Like, no single combat, no Fleet Feather Tracker, and that makes the Lulu Z matchup so, so much better. I actually think it's, it's a fairly good matchup for this deck. And yeah, for, for good matchups, literally everything else is 50-50 or better. Mostly better. Alright, why why do you think this deck is so good and it got so much traction? Because it's not only you that brought it, it's fairly a big amount of people that hopped off the Ionia train for Sivir and decided to bring the Demacia. Yeah, I think I kind of mentioned it. Like, the Ionia deck, just overall power level, it's a bit lower 
This is just tougher to deal with. It's like rally is a better win condition than dumping a full combo of four cards onto one unit. And you just it's very hard to lose board control with this deck if you play it well. There's like so many cheeky combos, so many points of damage you can get with this deck. Like very often also just getting the uh, sandstone charger off of the action landmark gives you the additional points for lethal for an open attack. It's just crazy well-rounded and crazy good. And if you were to advocate for the deck instead of playing the Ionia variant, or for example, let's have a different scenario. Someone wants to play this deck, start to start to play this deck. What would be some elementary tips that you would give them in order to get a better understanding of what they're doing at the end of the day? Um, play for board control first of all, and then the the damage will come in eventually. So, for example, like if you tag something with Merciless Hunter, you usually want to pull that with Sivir or Action or Honored Lord to get a free trade. Also, like save your key removal for the key targets. Like Merciless Hunter is better if it grants something like Sivir vulnerable on your opponent's side. Concerted Strike is better if it hits a big unit than a small one, like those kinds of things. And Cataclysm can also be used to push a lot of Nexus damage if used on Ruin Runner, for example. Nice, those are some really nice tips. So moving from the first deck to the second one, Zoe Lissin, some people, <laughs> myself, are calling it I have the Dragon combo for good reason, I think. So, yeah. wh why is it Zoe Lee still such a prevalent deck since it appeared? Because, well, not since it appeared, because the deck has seen some variations, but Lee Sin Targon has been very prevalent since it appeared. Yeah, I agree with the name, by the way. I, I call it Eye of the Dragon Control. Uh, <laughs> and. Um, what's the reason? That's a good question. It's super well rounded. The, the consistency of Eye of the Dragon kind of just flips all of the aggro matchups. Like, combo decks are supposed to have weaknesses. They're supposed to be weak to aggro or to mid-range, but, like, the flexibility this deck provides kind of makes it not weak to either of the two. And it has an insanely high skill cap. That's why the ladder stats are very deceiving, and that's why I think the developers look at it and don't think it's as strong as it really is. But every tournament player, top tournament player, knows that like, with all of the tools and all of the flexibility this deck has, it's, it's always a top tournament contender. I really wanted to ask you because this, because as you said, it has a high skill floor, so not most of the time you're going to see people bring it because they might not know what they're doing. They're going to probably go to something that's more beginner-friendly, something that curves out. But... Most of the time, we're seeing Zoe Listen being brought by those players that are really comfortable with it, and it usually performs. Why do you think it's so counterintuitive or it's so hard for other people to pick it up that are not familiar with the deck? I'd say it requires both a lot of micro and macro decision-making. So micro means planning the current turn well, how do you spend your mana, using a lot of soft passes. Like using a burst spell, then soft passing, or just open passing because you realize your opponent needs to act first. The other thing is 
macro game plan, knowing the matchup, what kind of removal do I need for which threats from my opponent, and vice versa? Like, how can they threaten my eyes? How can they threaten Lee Sin? At how much mana do I have counterplay to it? It's it requires a lot of matchup knowledge and also a lot of energy and concentration to play the deck. Probably for the nine rounds, it's not the best the best idea if you're not comfortable with the deck you're picking in the first time and you don't know what the hell is happening. You're just smashing cards and sometimes it works, sometimes it does not. But quick crash course for Zoe Lee, which would be your free tips to people that want to understand this deck? Um, learn the matchups. It's probably one of the most important things. Then, ba like based on learning the matchups, it becomes easier to not throw away your Lee Sin. Like play him when you can protect him reasonably. And the third thing would be always plan at least one turn ahead, ideally two or three. That's especially important with the Eyes of the Dragon. Make sure you can keep the, the flow of casting two spells going and going, that you never tap out out of mana, that you all of a sudden don't have your one or two Dragonlings on a defensive turn when you really, really need them. That's very nice advice. Before we're going to the next deck, ja, since you mentioned the matchups and the importance of knowing them, which would be quickly the matchup that you love to see with Zovilisin, which are the matchups that you hate to see with Zovilisin? Uh, hate is easy. TK Raka, Zero Relia. There's a couple of hard counters for this. Um, so I severed the mast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, my opponent played a target lineup against Lee Sin and Nivia and Gangplank Sejuani, kind of. Um, yeah, those type of decks. Lulu Z can also be annoying. And the easier matchups, something like Deep. Plunder is one of the better matchups for this. Um, honestly, I'm also fine into almost any aggro with the current version, with uh, triple I and triple gifts. But aggro is usually only slightly favored. Like the really favored ones are gonna be control decks or like slow mid range decks that don't don't have access to flash freeze or any other ways of dealing with Lee Sin. Mm -hmm. and his kick, of course, his OTK. Makes absolute sense. So let's move forward to the last deck, and it's the deck itself. It's Lulu Z. Why did we switch this deck for uh, for Anivia? What did we try to do with it, and why did we bring it? Um, yeah, I already mentioned with the the part about covering the weaknesses of Lee Sin mm -hmm. and vice versa. The other one is just not expecting a lot of as Draven TF Swain, not expecting a lot of the bad matchups, and it's very good and very punishing to people who get too creative. For example, the, the Azir Relia TK Raka lineups, like Lulu Z always gets more or less of a free win, um, which was also the case. Yeah, that's basically it. It was just a, a decent meta call. It's, um, although it is, was not synergistic with the other decks on paper at first sight, it kind of rounded up out the ni lineup nicely because it was like covering the weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Do you see the deck being played after the new cards get released? Maybe in the first days, or is it going to actually be prevalent even after, or is it something that happened this meta I'm not gonna see again? 
I think a version of this could be really good. I think we might see Poppy instead of Zed, for example. Maybe Poppy in instead of Lulu. Poppy makes a lot of sense with elusives. But yeah, elusives are, are for sure going to be around and they're also going to be strong because there is not a lot of... Like we see a lot of new cards be printed, but not a lot that are great control tools or removal tools, especially against a wide board. Alright, so we have this we have this lineup. What did we actually try to target with the whole lineup? I didn't really try to target anything. I think most of the time that's not a good strategy. Mm -hmm. I rather wanted to have good matchups into the most common decks and tried to never be like super polarized into an auto loss. Because if I would have brought a Nivea and Leeson, for example, there's no way I win against an Azir Relia plus TK lineup and uh, the Silver Demacia Akshan. Against the ones that I faced, I always at least had a realistic chance. They, the, the, even the series I lost was super duper close. So, yeah, I wanted to have good matchups into Gangplank Sejuani. And uh, Leeson was one of the better ones because they could only ban one out of several Demacia or Lulu Z. And those were what I expected to be the most common decks. Very nice. But now everything is said and done. You got your runner-up place the second time, and you are fairly a consistent player, even if it comes to playing into grassroots tournaments. If it comes to seasonal, you are always up there. So after playing into so many competitive tournaments, would you change anything to the actual seasonal tournament or what would be anything if you want to change if there is anything mm, there are a lot of flaws like it's always easy to point out flaws it's tougher to come up with really good solutions on how to fix them um some flaws for the open rounds would be the 7-2 tiebreaker system how it incentivizes ladder play, how if you start off with a 0-2 score, you get easier opponents all the way uh, through. Shout out to Glob right here. <laughs> <laughs> and then the... Wait, I'm not sure if I mentioned the timer system already, but that for sure needs needs tweaks and improvements and the rule set behind the timer, timeout and so on. And maybe randomizing the top cut, that's been a discussion recently. Or like not being able to switch decks between day one and day two. Then another option would be to just have the whole tournament on one weekend. There's a lot that can be done. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with what it is. I'm glad that we get the opportunity to compete at all. And for a, for a decent sum of money. Um, but yeah, some things can be improved. Another one would be the price payout structure, maybe make it a bit more even, a bit more flatted out, mm -hmm. that not only the top two players get almost all of the money. Um, yeah, that's most of the stuff I can think of right now. I would, I would like to ask you only one thing, because I mentioned the timer rule. Some people mentioned that timer should be less punitive in top cut because it's a smaller amount of players, yes, from a broadcast perspective, you want the timer so you finish actually in time and you make sure you finish the broadcast. But what would be some changes that you are thinking about or at least let's theorize that would make sense for the top 42? I mean, as of right now, it would have just made sense to have 70 or 75 minutes rounds. 
uh, 60 minutes for a best of three with slower decks is just not enough. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, 60 minutes includes pick ban and blah, blah, and breaks and whatever. If the reality is closer to, to 45 or 50 of pure gameplay. But then the clock itself, some issues were like animations counting uh, the time of the opponent and so on. And just the rule set in general, that it doesn't matter how slow you play the first two games. Only the time bank in game three matters if it goes to timeout. Um, You can pull off some cheesy tactics there. And also with like, if the the time runs out during game two, the winner of game one wins the whole series. Yeah, some people, I've heard, it never happened to me, but I've heard some people pulled off some seriously cheesy stuff. Um, just winning game one, game one in a slow fashion, and then completely roping game two. Not how it's intended to be. There's definitely some nice suggestions that they're having a random queue, and I'm curious to see how the developers are going to solve it out because they are usually very receptive to what people are saying to the community feedback. So that's definitely going to be a solution coming next year, maybe even in Worlds at some point. But we're nearing the end of the interview, and one of the burning questions is: What are you going to do with the money? I don't know a lot yet, so I am probably going to invest it to upgrade the stream setup a little bit. It's always nice to to get some better hardware, like camera. Mm -hmm. I recently got a a desk that can move up and down, so I don't have to sit there the whole time. I can stand up and sit whenever I want to. Um, I'm also looking for a YouTube editor right now, so having a, a bit of money in the back to pay them is really nice. Um... Traveling, probably. Some point after Worlds is over, it's it's definitely time for a longer vacation. <laughs> yeah, if if Corona allows it, like going to some nice place would be super nice. The first bathtub stream with people. <laughs> the first what? The first Sorry. bathtub stream. Uh, stream with stream. Bath- <laughs> <laughs> Maybe eventually. Uh, yeah. Since we're nearing the end of the interview, I do imagine that being so consistent, you do need some good practice partners in order to manage this level of consistency and to be well prepared. So now is the time to give them a shout out and show them you care. (laughs) I mean, I've had a lot of practice partners and a lot of people I I talked strategies with over the the course of time. A special shout out to Guardia for sure. Uh, we've been prepping together for the longest amount of time, basically since LOR exists. Gamebreaker as well, also another fellow German, I've already done strategy talks with. And uh, yeah, I can't name all of you, unfortunately, but if I've ever prepped or scrimped with you, thank you. Special shout out to Team Madman, I guess. I'm not sure if they're still super active, but they did help me a lot along the way as well. And um, I'm still talking to a lot of them directly whenever a tournament comes up. Awesome. And now it's actually the burning question before the last one. How do you maintain such a gorgeous mustache? (laughs) Honestly, just genetics. Once you start losing your hair on top of your head, (laughs) it it just blossoms here on your face. That's the whole secret. Nothing is lost. Everything is reused. I like that one. Now it's actually actually the end of the interview, and we have this traditional question that we're asking people. If you had to say only one thing to the audience that is now watching, which thing would that one be? 
play Timo, and thanks for watching. Thank you for watching, Edith. It has been a pleasure to have you here, Lobster. Hope to have you after the words as well. It's gonna be crazy in the following weeks. Good luck on that one. But that's it for you guys. Just for this EU tournament because we're having plenty more to come because it's two more seasonal regions to cover. So stay tuned. See you next time.